0: You know there are some scriptures, there's not a bad one in the book but there are some scriptures that it seems to me like we ought to live in and by that I mean give extra attention to, focus our attention on it and and, uh, meditate regularly, uh, daily on some of these scriptures and and these are two of them here that I I think fit that category. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 it says, Christ hath redeemed us doesn't say he's going to, doesn't say there's a work left to be done, it says he has already done it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Here's the reason why, verse 14, That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on all the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now if you talk with most people, uh, most Christians about redemption and uh, if the conversation goes to the place where the question is asked what are we redeemed from? Most Christians will say we're redeemed from sin and there's an element of truth in that but that's not really the, what the Bible says we're redeemed from. It says we're redeemed from the curse of the law. Now when the Bible, when the New Testament talks about the law it's talking about one of two things. It's either talking about the Ten Commandments Or it's talking about the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Now, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments that refers to or references a a curse in any way whatsoever. So we're going to have to go back to the beginning and find out from the first five books of the the Bible, those that Moses provided, um, well, that God provided through Moses, and, uh, and see what those things were that we have been redeemed from. The word redeemed literally means to ransom or to buy out of, to buy back we as Christians need to know what we're bought from Jesus shed his blood he offered his blood precious blood, holy blood as a sacrifice and as a substitute for us but if we don't know what belongs to us we don't know what we're redeemed from there's no way in the world we can apply ourselves in that regard Genesis chapter 2 tells us about how that when God uh, created the earth and then put man in the middle of it here's what the instruction that he gives him Beginning in verse 16, Genesis 2:16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die." Now where it says that uh, uh, when God told Adam, "In the day you eat of it, there you shall surely die." This is the first curse, the first warning, the first uh, consequence that is introduced to man prior to this point in time god has made adam and eve well first he made the earth a perfect place a perfect environment for his man adam and eve and he puts them in the middle of it and he says that they have authority over it genesis 1 uh, 126. god said let us make man in our own image and let him have dominion over the works of our hands god made man for one one sole purpose one primary purpose And that was to have authority on the earth. Now when God gave authority to man on the earth, he wasn't uh, providing it for mankind on a temporary basis. God wasn't offering authority to man on the earth to see what he would do with it. And if he messed up, he'd take that authority back. Man has been given authority on the earth. If it was ever God's will for man to have authority on the earth, it's always God's will for him to have authority on the earth. God doesn't change. His plans don't change. His purposes don't change. And so he intended for man to have authority. Well, in order for man to exercise authority, there has to be a will, a free will in place. Because exercising authority wouldn't mean anything if you weren't able to do whatever you wanted to. Exercising authority or being given authority would mean absolutely nothing if man was a robot and forced into doing God's will. He wouldn't have authority were ashamed because of their nakedness. Well, they didn't die physically that day, did they? The Bible talks about Adam living for 930 years after he fell in the Garden of Eden. You know, that's that's an amazing thing to me. Even after death enters the scene through Adam's disobedience, Adam's sin, it still took 930 years for death to overcome the life of God that he was created in. I think the life of God means a lot more than what we think it does I think it's a lot stronger than what we give it credit for well if he didn't die physically in the day that he ate ate thereof disobeyed God then how did he die the Bible indicates to us that he died spiritually Romans 5 12 explains it it says wherefore as by one man's sin sin entered the world one man's disobedience sin entered the world And death by sin. Now that death he's talking about is spiritual death. Spiritual death can be identified or defined as separation from God. So spiritual death came upon the scene. And Romans 5.12 says, because of Adam's disobedience, sin entered entered the world and death by sin. So the consequence, the real consequence that God was telling Adam and Eve about was that you'll die spiritually. You won't cease to exist. We think of death in terms of ceasing to exist in some way or another. But death is rarely used in that context in the Bible. Spiritual death is always referred to and and described or understood to be separation from God. So that's the first thing that happened. That's the first curse for breaking God's command. And the curse of the law is just simply the results of man's broken promise or or man's broken man-breaking God's law. I'll get it out in a minute. And so where it talks about the curse of the law, here's the first law that man was given. So if Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, he's got to redeem us from spiritual death, first and foremost. Now turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us about the curse of the law, the blessings of obedience to the law, and also the curses that come upon mankind because of the, the broken law of God. Beginning in verse 28, chapter 28, verse 15, the first part of the chapter is good, but it talks about the blessings rather than the curses. So we want to, for the sake of time, we want to just look at the curses. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, it says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments, and his statutes which I command thee this day, That all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. So he's talking about curses. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land, the increase of your kind or cattle and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing and vexation and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me now anytime we read these scriptures in the Old Testament we've got to do some explaining because if these scriptures contradict what other scriptures tell us about concerning the character and the nature of God the ways of God the doings of God then we've got to reconcile it some way or another so we have a right picture of God now here it says in the King James Translation that I was reading from, it talks about the Lord sending things on you, and the Lord causing things to come upon you, curses to come upon you. And we always rely on what Dr. Robert Young said. He was the author of Young's Analytical Concordance. And in a, a book that's long since out of print, there's a little reference to it in the uh, preface notes to his concordance. But the book that's uh, long out of print is, uh, was titled, Hints to Bible Interpretation. And in that book, he went into great detail to explain how that in the Hebrew language, there's a permissive verb that the English doesn't have. And so in many cases, many uh, places in the Old Testament, the, um, the, tr- the translators used the causative sense, just like here where it says, the Lord will send vexation upon you and curses and so forth. They used the causative sense Because their idea, apparently, the translator's idea, was that God was controlling everything, good and bad. But folks, the Bible can't be telling us that God brings curses and vexation and sickness on us when the Bible says there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning with God, and we know that God identifies himself as healer. See, if God's making people sick, and on the other hand, on occasion, healing people, using divine power to heal the sick, then we've got to determine which way God is. He can't be both. There's no shadow of turning. God said, I'm God, I change not. Well, if he doesn't change, that means he can't work both sides of the street when it comes to blessings and curses. He's either the blesser of mankind or he's the curser of mankind. He can't be both. It's got to be one way or the other. Now, hold your finger here. We'll come back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. But I want you to look with me at some other scriptures in the Old Testament that'll point this out Bear this out. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. Here's an example of this causative versus uh, uh, permissive verb or tense in the Hebrew language. Isaiah 45 verse 7. It says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, any translation, we say this over and over again, but I want to... Uh, Hammer it home so that everybody understands. Translations of the Bible are not necessarily inspired. The original text is. What God said is inspired by the Holy Ghost and is full of life and power. But that doesn't mean a translator is or a translation is. And here in this uh, uh, verse of scripture, it's talking about God's work. God is clearly talking about his, his work, but again, it looks like he's playing both sides of the street here. It says, I form the light and create darkness. You see that word create? There's two ways that that word can be used, and this is pretty common in the Hebrew language. Many words in Hebrew have two definitions, and they seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum, one for another. And so here where it says, I create darkness, I form the light and create darkness, this word create means two things. And the translators were left to decide which way was uh, correct or appropriate. It means either to make, as we would understand create, or it means to cut down, like you'd cut down a tree. Well, which one do you use? The translators clearly thought their understanding of God was such that they thought God was behind anything and everything that happened. But let's look at the context here, where it says, I form the light and create darkness either I form the light and make darkness or I form the light and cut down darkness how did God make light did he not does the Bible not tell us in Genesis chapter 1 that God looked at the earth that was without form and void that became that way it became a destructed, uh, a, a destroyed place not, certainly not the way God made it and God looked into the darkness and said light be now what happened to darkness when he said let there be light was it not cut down So when God's telling us in Isaiah 45:7, I form the light and create darkness. He can't be working against himself. If he's forming the light and creating darkness, that would be working against himself, and Jesus talked about every kingdom that opposes itself will fall. It can't stand. But we know from the Genesis account of creation which one this should be. I form the light And cut down darkness. I make peace and cut down evil. Here's that same word again. Which way should it be used? To make, is he saying he made evil? Or is he saying he cut down evil by making peace? Well, folks, if he made the evil, if God's the creator and the originator of evil, what right does he have to judge man for committing evil? What right does he have to command that man abstain from evil? Why would God express judgment or pass judgment on evil if it's something he made? I think you can see the point. So where he says, I form the light and cut down darkness. I make peace and cut down evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Turn with me to another verse of scripture in Amos. The Old Testament book of Amos chapter 3. Verse 6 it says shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it here again you've got the translators relying on their understanding of God and that's all the translation is built on the worth of the value of a translation is based on two things one is the translator's understanding of the language that's used that's being translated from and the other is their understanding of God now, we can see in Isaiah 45, 7 that we just talked about, the translator's understanding of God is what caused them to translate that verse of Scripture in the causative sense. They seem to have the idea that God's doing whatever gets done. If there's evil, then God made it. If there's sickness and disease, then God had to make it. But that's not what the Bible is telling us. Notice it says, Shall, there be a, shall the trumpet be blown and in the city and the people not be afraid? shall there be evil in the city and the lord hath not done it this is one of those situations where it's not just the, the permissive verb but rather it's shall not the lord do something about it but again the translator's understanding of god their idea of god was that whatever was going on god was the author of it now let me show you another one first samuel chapter 16 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Is that where evil spirits come from? If evil spirits come from the Lord, we have no business resisting them. If evil spirits are from God, and God says that he's good and only good, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of Christ, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. That's James one twenty one. If that's the way God is, then he can't be the author of evil spirits. And if God is the author of evil spirits, you remember that it was at least on one occasion when Jesus found somebody that was oppressed of the devil and he cast the devil out of him. If the evil spirit in that individual was from the Lord, then Jesus has just worked contrary to the Father's will. Because if the Father's will is ever for somebody to be oppressed by an evil spirit, then since he doesn't change, this has to be his his will for eternity. So if that's the case, then all the people that Jesus cast the devil out of in his earthly ministry, he's working contrary to the will and the plan and the purpose of God, which makes him a sinner. Which means he can't be the, the holy or worthy sacrifice for our redemption. But of course, we know that's not the case. An evil spirit from the Lord didn't trouble him. Therefore, when we come back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and start looking at the things that the, the scripture says and the things that God is attributed to or things that are attributed to him, we have to take with a grain of salt in understanding the rest of the Bible, interpret the rest of the Bible in such a way that it's consistent. So let me go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 20, I think is where we stopped before. It said, The Lord shall send upon thee cursing and vexation and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. Did you notice that it's talked about because of the wickedness of your doings? Folks, in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, God is telling mankind, here's how things work. If you disobey my law, if you break my law, if you break my covenant, if you break my commandments, then these are the consequences. You'll be cursed in the city, you'll be cursed in the field. It's not that God is causing cursings, or vexation or rebukes come upon people. It's that this is the way the system works once sin entered into the, on, upon the scene. He's just simply say, saying, if you step out off of the curb into traffic, you're going to get hit. It doesn't mean he's driving the car ensuring you're run over. He's just saying, this is the place to stay safe. Stay on the curb and you're okay. Stay on the sidewalk, you're okay. But if you get out there in the traffic, which is symbolically being used in my illustration to break the law, break his commandments, then you get out in the devil's territory where these bad things can happen. So God's just simply issuing a warning. He's not saying, here's what I'll do if you break my law. He's saying, here's what happens when you break my law. Verse 21, the Lord shall make... The pestilence thieve unto thee until he has consumed thee from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it. Makes it sound like God's waiting for an opportunity to destroy you. Just waiting for you to step out of line. But that's not what he's doing. He's trying to warn his people. Not to break his commandments so that they don't put themselves in a position for the curse to take them or overtake them. Verse 22, the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And the heaven that is over thy head shall be brass and the earth that is under thee shall be like iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust from heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. Folks, I want you to understand again. And it's not, it's not the cause the verb that's being used or tense that's being used. It's the permissive. I want you to notice that even the weather is affected by whether or not they obeyed the commandments or broke them. He's saying very specifically, and, and maybe I should back up a little bit. When we talk about redeem from the curse, there are three things that the Bible tells us, three things that the Old Testament reveals to us that are a part of the curse of the law. The first we saw in Genesis chapter 2 was spiritual death. Well, Jesus paid the price for spiritual death. He shed his blood so that we could have eternal life. So the opposite of spiritual death is eternal life. And that's something that we have now according to what the scripture says. We're no longer separated from God. We're not disjointed from God. But instead we're united with him, one with the Father, just like Jesus was one with the Father, according to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Well, the second thing that we're redeemed from as far as the curse of the law is concerned is poverty lack and all these things the first thing that he talks to the children of israel about first thing moses tells them about the broken law the consequences of of breaking god's law is he talks about how the earth will not work for them you remember after um god came down and looked for adam and adam was hiding from him because of his sin you remember the curses that were pronounced on the earth he told adam that the earth would only produce for him now through the sweat of his brow well apparently the earth was producing for him in some other way besides that before the fall I'm not sure exactly what that would be but we do know that the the pattern the Bible establishes in Genesis chapter 1 is that God created everything through the spoken word the Bible tells us that God's words created everything that we see and know and experience here in this physical and natural realm So it could be that the earth produced for Adam through the use of his words and not just the sweat of his brow. It talks about how the earth will produce thorns and thistles for him from that point forward, from the point that he sinned against God. Well, I'm sure Adam was wondering, what are thorns and thistles? He's never seen those before. They've never been part of the the created earth up until that point in time. And so the earth is clearly going to work against the man and his efforts rather than for him like it was originally designed to do. So that makes it the second part of what we're redeemed from or what redeemed from the curse of the law really means. First, we're redeemed from spiritual death. Secondly, we're redeemed from poverty. And the third thing we're redeemed from is sickness and disease. There was no sickness and disease until after the fall. And remember the first six days of creation, God made everything. The scripture says God made everything that he made. After Adam fell, he didn't come back on the scene and say, well, now we're going to have to show how bad disobedience to my commandment is, so I know we'll make sickness. The Bible says God made an end of everything that he created at the end of the sixth day. Well, where's sickness and disease? It's nowhere to be found. It didn't exist on the earth. There was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind on the earth in any way whatsoever. So therefore we have to conclude that God can't be the author or the creator of sickness and disease since sin was its origin. But man didn't know anything about that. God didn't, didn't bother to tell him now you're going to start experiencing all kinds of different sicknesses and diseases. I'm sure Adam's first sore throat was quite a surprise to him because he knew nothing about sickness and disease. There was no such thing prior to the fall. And everything that we're going to read in this 27 or 28th chapter of Deuteronomy has to do with the curse of the law, including poverty and sickness and disease. But that's not the way God wanted it to be. Verse 25, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Here again, cause it instead of permissive. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt, some uh, scholars believe that's leprosy, and with the emeralds and with the scabs, skin diseases and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. So he's talking about how that there are some conditions that make up the curse of the law that are incurable. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard and shall not gather the grapes thereof. So you can see that family and social issues are also concerned. And a part of the consequences of God's broken law. Thine ox shall be slain before thine eyes, and thou shalt not eat thereof. Thine ass shall be violently taken away from before thy face, and shall not be restored to thee. Thy sheep shall be given unto thine enemies, and thou shalt have none to rescue them. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day. All the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand. The fruit of your land and all your labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always, so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs and with a sore botch that cannot be healed, and from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, and there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone, And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, whereupon the Lord shall lead thee. Now, he's talking about idolatry here, and you know it's not God's will for him to worship idols. So he can't be saying, this is what I'm going to make you do. He's just saying, this is the result. You start down the road to disobedience. If he's going to make it that way, then what right does he have to judge his people? Hundreds of the grapes or the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with the oil, for thine olive shall cast his fruit. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. All thy trees and the fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and thou sh- and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed. Because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. Notice destruction is the result. All different ways that it comes about, but destruction is the result, the end result of God's broken law, God's broken commandment. It's not the way God wants it to be, but it is the way that it is. It's the way that things work because of the curse of the law, the broken law of God. Verse 46, and they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. He shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he has destroyed thee. Again, it makes it sound like God's want these things to happen. But clearly, this is not the way he wants it to be. I'll prove it to you as we go a little further. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far and from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which thou shalt not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave Thee, either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kind, or flocks of thy sheep, until he has destroyed thee. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until the high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all the land. And he shall besiege thee in all the gates, throughout all the land which the Lord thy God has given thee." This is tiring, isn't it? "...and thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and thy daughters, which the Lord thy God has given thee in the siege." And in the straightness whereof, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee, so that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the remnant of the children which he shall leave, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he shall eat, because he has nothing left him in the siege. And in the straightness whereof, wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in all thy gates." The tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eyes shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet, and toward her children, which she shall bear, for she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege, and straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in thy gates. That sounds terrible enough to want to avoid this. Don't you think? Verse 58, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book. So it's the book of the law. This has got to be the curse of the law that Paul is talking about in Galatians 3. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. And the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance and sore countenance and of long continuance continuance, where moreover he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. now notice verse sixty one he's enumerated several thirteen specifically, different diseases that would come upon the people as a result of the broken law. but notice in verse sixty one. It says, also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now we'll stop reading there and I hope you get the point. I hope you saw the, the reality that the curse of the law certainly included sickness and disease and it included poverty and then it had a lot of things to do with the enemies coming and destroying them, taking them over and so forth, being laid under siege and such. But these are the things that Moses identified as the curse of the law. Now I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because I want you to see what the other side is. Let's see, where, where do we want to stop? start here? Let's start in verse 11. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he sware unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. And he will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn, thy wine, and thine oil, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people, there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness, and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. Thine eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shalt thou serve up their gods, for that will be a snare unto you." Um. Well, how long do we want to go here? How far down? Let me see. Notice in verse 24, And he shall deliver their kings unto thy hand, talking about their enemies, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou hast destroyed them. I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a little bit as well. I want you to see something else that it talks about. Beginning in verse 7, for the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass, when thou hast eaten and art full, and then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses, those must be okay with God, and dwell therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and everything that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water? Who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint? Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end? And thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers as it is this day. So we see what God's plan was. We see what God wanted to, to, to do for his people. But it all content, was contingent upon whether or not they would keep the law, keep the commandments, or break the law. So when we look at redeem from the curse of the law again, redeem means to ransom or buy back from. There are things that the Bible tells us that Jesus paid the price for so that we wouldn't have to pay the price. Jesus paid the price for spiritual death, and that price was his blood. Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease, and that price was his blood. Jesus paid the price for poverty and lack, and that price was his blood too. God wants to do good by his people. In the old covenant, God wanted to do great things for them. He talked about everything they have being multiplied. God's not interested in keeping somebody's nose to the the grindstone. God's not interested in, in the idea that so much of the modern church is trying to propagate that God doesn't want you to have much. He wants to keep you poor so that he can keep you humble. Folks, being poor doesn't make you humble. Being poor makes you hungry. has nothing to do with humility. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, the Bible talks about humility as being accepting what God's word says no matter what it looks like to you. So when the Bible says, "Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law," it's showing us God's will. God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, is for his people to have plenty, for his people to walk in health, for his people to enjoy the, the benefits, the blessings of eternal life. Even in the Old Testament, David understood that the that a relationship with God that would be fulfilled by the Messiah would be something that would bring great blessing in a variety of ways. He said in Psalm 103, "Bless the Lord, O my soul." and all that's within me, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Well, what benefits did he recognize? What benefits did David know under the old covenant that were theirs? He said, who forgiveth thine iniquities, who healeth thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. There's that ransom again. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction and crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's God's plan, folks. That's what God wanted to take place. So when the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, he's bought us out of all these things. His blood paid the price. Now, a lot of people don't know what they have. Have you ever had an experience? I assume some of you had at least, maybe most of you. Have you ever had an experience where you put your hands in a pocket of a pair of pants or a jacket maybe or something you hadn't worn in a while and you found money in it? And then it triggers your memory, and you remember that that you put money there. Well, the money was yours all the time, but you couldn't use it because you didn't know it was there. You forgot it was there, so you couldn't take advantage of it. That's the way Christianity is for a lot of people. The things that the Bible clearly says belongs to us are not things that, that the ordinary Christian, the average Christian recognizes belongs to them. And if they don't know it belongs to them, they sure can't exercise faith to take hold of it. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He paid the price for us so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the people of God in other words. Now I want you to look with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm running out of time here so we want to cover a couple of things real quickly. I want to read verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, I want to ask you a question, folks. When did Jesus become poor? Some people will say, well, Jesus became poor when he was here on the earth. And I wouldn't argue a bit that coming to the earth is a step down from the presence of God. I wouldn't argue that in any way whatsoever. But, folks, how in the world could Jesus just be considered to be poor when he was here on the earth and he had a treasurer which means he had to have money and the bible tells us that even on the night jesus was betrayed and judas went out jesus and, and uh, had a private conversation with judas and judas was the treasurer and the bible says he was stealing money out of the bag but john says that when judas left the last supper the disciples assumed that he was gone out to give money to the poor now folks what kind of record would you expect to have for every time you leave the room for people to think oh he's going to give to the poor I mean that has to be a common occurrence a constant occurrence almost for that to be what they assumed was taking place well one thing's for sure if you don't have something you can't give it so if Jesus is giving to the poor with regularity as the scripture identifies then there had to be enough money on hand for it to be done Now, some people will say, yeah, but Jesus talked about the Son of Man not having anywhere to lay his head. Jesus said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head when he was away from home on his ministry endeavors. But Jesus was responsible for his mother. Since his father is off the scene, Joseph is not talked about when Jesus is an adult. We have to assume that he was dead. But Jesus says the firstborn, he had brothers and sisters, literally half brothers and sisters, But he was responsible. The law of Moses demanded that he was responsible for his mother's care. Well, what kind of care could you provide for your mother if you didn't have a house? I think a lot of Christians have the idea that Jesus was some homeless guy living under a bridge. But if that's the case, then why did the Roman soldiers gamble for his clothes when he went to the cross? The Bible talks specifically. Now, think about the detail given us here. The Bible speaks specifically about Jesus having a coat that didn't have a seam in it. It was one continuous cloth, which implies that it was very costly. It was kind of like Joseph's coat of many colors, perhaps, something like that. But it was very costly. It was very fine. And that's the reason why the, the Roman soldiers gambled for his clothing. They didn't want to tear it, up, tear it in pieces and divide it among them. So they gambled for it. Now, have you ever heard of any homeless guy under a bridge People do anything with their clothes in a useful manner when they die? No, we understand that people that are living under a bridge, homeless people living under a bridge, they don't have much in the way of clothing. And there certainly wouldn't be any situation where people would want the clothing. If anything, you'd probably want to burn it. So how could Jesus have taken care of his mother? And remember, this is a really important issue because this is the law of Moses. It commanded the firstborn well, firstborn children, hopefully the firstborn son. But it commanded the firstborn to take care of the parents. And if Jesus does not do that, then that makes him a sinner too. That makes him a lawbreaker. So he had to take care of his mother. And folks, we see a hint of that when he was hanging on the cross. And he looked down at John just before he gave up the ghost, just before his spirit went down to hell to complete paying the price. He looked at John, and Mary was close by. His mother Mary was close by, and he said, Behold your son, talking to Mary. And he said, John, behold your mother. In other words, he transferred the care of Mary, his mother, to John when he was on the cross. So Jesus had to have a home. In fact, some different translations, the NIV is one, and the ASV is one, and there are some others uh, less well-known. But the story about the people bringing in the guy on the cot and tearing up the roof and letting him down in the middle of the crowd there are several different translations uh four that i'm aware of that talk about jesus being in his own house in that day that he went to his house and the bible tells us that jesus beginning his earthly ministry he moved from where he was to capernaum well what does that mean if he didn't have a house you can't hardly call that a move can you so the idea that Jesus didn't have anything here on the earth is ridiculous. He had a treasury, he had treasurers, he was responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 to 150 people at any given time. Even the story of the loaves and the fishes, where Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, when the disciples come to him and bring to Jesus' attention the fact that they've gone three days without eating, Jesus said, give them something to eat. The disciples first question was where are we going to buy that much food? The question was not where are we going to get the money for that much food. The question is where are we going to find that much food to give to the people? And then that's when Jesus said, what do we have? And somebody said, well, one little boy's got a lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and Jesus multiplied that and fed 5,000. But even at that, the disciples didn't say, well, we don't have that kind of money. They said, where would we buy that much food for 5,000 people? I guess they didn't have a Costco nearby. So the idea that Jesus was impoverished here on the earth just doesn't fly and doesn't uh, jive with the other scriptures. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, if Jesus was made poor or took the penalty of poverty on himself just like he took the penalty of sickness and disease and just like he put the penalt- took the penalty, our penalty, our punishment for spiritual death upon him, then this has to be talking about the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though for, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now some people another argument on this is some people will say, well, they, Jesus became spiritually poor. Folks, spiritually poor people don't raise the dead. Spiritually poor people don't perform miracles and healings. Spiritually poor people don't multiply loaves and fishes and turn water into wine. There's no way this was spiritual poverty. Somehow or another it seems like every, a lot of people take the position of trying to spiritualize everything. There's no spiritualization of anything taking place here. Isaiah 53, five says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, he paid the price for poverty and lack. And his intent, God's intent, is to reverse every part of these curse of the law, every aspect or characteristic of the curse of the law. To reverse spiritual death and provide eternal life to reverse sickness and disease and provide divine healing and health to reverse poverty so that we through his poverty the chastisement of our peace that was upon him would make us rich now when you talk about rich people have a problem with that a lot of times the word rich means a lot of things to a lot of people and it's always a relative term nowhere does the Bible tell us that God will make us a billionaire doesn't tell us he won't But see a lot of people think of rich as being a dollar amount. And the word rich just simply means a full supply. It simply means abundance. Paul goes on to talk to the Corinthians in the next chapter. About God's ability to make all grace abound toward us. So that we are sufficient. And have the resources to give to every good work. I think God thinks bigger about what he wants his children to have than we do and we've had hundreds of years of the church trying to talk us out of it so maybe it's understandable but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming our substitute by paying the price for us now what sense would it make if Jesus paid the price for spiritual death what sense would it make for us to still operate as spiritually dead people Paul said, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, right into the Ephesians, you who are dead in trespasses and sins, God has raised to sit together with him in heavenly places. It's a reversal. Because of the payment that was made. So what sense would it make for Jesus to pay the price for us, not just for spiritual death, but also for sickness and disease, for us to live under the bondage of sickness and disease? That's not his plan. His plan was to provide healing and health for us. And what sense would it make since he was a substitute for our poverty or our lack, the earth working against us instead of working for us like it was designed to? What sense would it make for us to operate and live in poverty and in lack when he reversed the curse of the law in that respect as well? And the Bible clearly states that God's plan and purpose is for us to be rich. I like Deuteronomy 7 and 8 because it talks about what God considers to be a the normal way for us to live. The lifestyle of his people. He's talking about silver and gold multiplying. He's talking about building goodly houses. He's talking about cattle and sheep multiplying. He's talking about everything that we have multiplied. He's talking about the, the trees or the crops that, the, that his people would, would uh, plant and harvest. He talks about increasing and being abundantly provided for in every regard. He must be okay with that kind of stuff. He talked about providing us a place where we'd eat without scarceness. He talked about providing a land, a habitation for us. Where everything that we need is provided for. Because he redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from spiritual death. He redeemed us from poverty. And he redeemed us from sickness and disease. Now whether we take advantage of that or not is up to us. His job is to show us what belongs to us. And he does that quite well. Our job is to take hold of it. How do we do that? Well, remember where we started in Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3.13, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Through faith. It's through this wonderful thing called faith that belongs to us. Now, I know the arguments. I know the objections that come up in our minds. I know that it's easy for people to say, well, how can we say that healing belongs to us when there's sickness in our bodies? How can we say that God has made us rich, which is what faith would do? Faith would declare what God said about it no matter what the circumstance looks like. So how can we, how can we say that we're abundantly provided for? How can we say that we're the, the people of God who have been made rich when we're stacked up to our eyeballs in bills and debts and so forth? Well, folks, there's two kinds of people. There's the people that believe what God's word says and people that don't. Which one are you? You decide. You choose. Paul seemed to have some experience with this kind of thing in Romans chapter 3. Maybe it's chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, I guess that's where it is. But he talked about the advantage of the Jews over the Gentiles because they were the ones that first received the word of God talking about the Old Testament. But then he says but what if people don't believe what we're saying? He says, shall the unbelief of others rob us of the blessings of God? God forbid. Let every man be a liar and let God be true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Folks, even if the liar's Or the lies are coming from your own head. God's word is still true. Remember what Jonah said in the belly of the fish. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. He's calling the circumstances of being swallowed by a fish. And all the negative and gross stuff that's going on uh, uh, as a result of that. He calls those lying vanities. Now we would call them physical facts and they are physical facts they are really what's going on in his life but he knew from his relationship with God and the power of his word that there's a greater truth that can change the circumstances and they did those lying vanities changed Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law let's pray Father we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our substitute. We thank you, Father, that Jesus paid the price for sin, literally spiritual death, sickness and disease.